Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 17, 2016. Coming up, we speak with the founder of CU Boulder's Gold Lab Symposium. It's happening this Friday and Saturday, courtesy of Larry Gold. So you can imagine a large set of really high-class experiments of the kinds we've been talking about at this symposium since the beginning that you might be able to do if you built the infrastructure to get people to be part of the commons of making those kinds of samples available. So that's what we're going to try to do. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Today, Larry Gold will tell us what to expect at this weekend's Gold Lab Symposium. It takes place this Friday and Saturday. The symposium is free, but it does require pre-registration. You can find out more at goldlabfoundation.org. As for Larry Gold, he's been founder of many successful biotech companies. He's currently chairman of the board and founder of the Boulder Biotech Company, Somalogic. The Gold Lab Symposium is a chance to hear and talk with leading scientists and policymakers from around the world. This Friday and Saturday will be the seventh annual symposium. This year's theme is Standing Together, Healthcare for the Common Good. Larry Gold, you're a successful scientist, businessman, entrepreneur, and it's time for the Gold Lab Symposium again. Let's look through the list of what's happening Friday, May 20th, and can you find something that's especially science-y? Because this is for the science show. Huh. Well, on Friday morning, there are two science-y talks, one by Tom Blumenthal and one by Gene Robinson from the University of Illinois. Well, let's read what those are then. The Unrealized Value to Society of Understanding Down Syndrome. Let's start with Down Syndrome. Okay. Tom Blumenthal is the director of the Linda Chernick Institute at the med school. Here in Colorado. In Colorado, yes. Tom used to be the chair of MCDB, Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. I was once the chair of that for five years. My goodness. About a, a thousand years ago. Tom was the chair. And while he was the chair, he was offered a chance to give up the chair, which he did, and to go back to the medical school where he used to be before he became the chair and run this extraordinary institute that John and Anna C. and their daughter Michelle Witten did, which is an institute funded by that family to understand Down syndrome medically, meaning to figure out what one could do to intervene positively in the lives of people with Down syndrome. Well, let's talk a bit about what Down syndrome is. It's the people that we've all seen, and if we're fortunate, we know, who have the eyes that are called the mongoloid eyes and somewhat shortened fingers and quite often have a strong emotional sense ability, but quite often have lower mental IQ. Yes, so Down syndrome is caused by having an extra copy of chromosome 21. It's a trisomy instead of a disomy. So we normally all have two copies of each of our chromosomes. 
approximately. The sex chromosomes are different. Then you have an extra copy of chromosome 21, which is the smallest chromosome. It has the fewest genes on it of all the chromosomes. Just those few hundred genes being present in three copies instead of two cause all the phenotypes that you were describing in people who are born with Down syndrome. And on the average, I don't remember the numbers, but the IQ, which is hard to measure always in people who have diminished capacity, 90 or 80 or some number like that, not 110 or whatever we now think it is. And what you said about their emotional strengths is true. I've spent a lot of time with Michelle's daughter, Sophia, and a lot of time with other people with Down syndrome. And it is true that they are remarkably, as a group, remarkably empathic. I've seen moments where Sophia was the most empathic person in a room of a hundred typical people. And there she was, being this extraordinary human being. And, and, and yay, okay? But there are other things, and Tom's talk will deal with this, because I know I'm on the... Uh, Leslie Linewan, Tom Check, and I are all on the scientific advisory committee for Tom Blumenthal. The idea of studying people with Down syndrome is both to help them, that's what Tom's talk will be about, help their families and them. Because there are the challenges of not having an ability to take care of yourself, which is the case for many people with Down syndrome, plus there's some health problems. There's a wide range of lower capacity, and, and there are people with Down syndrome who don't take care of themselves well, but then there are people who are pretty close to normal. So there's a high range of function in people with an extra copy of chromosome 21. The diseases that people get and don't get when they have Down syndrome are remarkable and not understood fully. You just said something that surprised me. You didn't just say the diseases someone with Down syndrome gets. You said the diseases they don't get. I did that in part because it's true and in part because one of the high points of my life every year is surprising you, so that was good. (laughs) Nice laugh. I like that. People with Down syndrome have an extraordinary incidence of Alzheimer's. They get Alzheimer's early, and it is partially understood because on chromosome 21 is a gene called APP. That's its nickname. And that gene is thought to be responsible for Alzheimer's, at least partially responsible. And when you have three copies, you get Alzheimer's earlier and with a higher frequency than the typical population. And there are even people with Down syndrome, there have been two identified, who don't have Alzheimer's and actually have function higher than the average. There's only two, though, so it's hard to do that math, but two. And those two people who have been identified in one of the copies of chromosome 21, the gene for APP was knocked out. So they were actually diploid for APP. Meaning that they had a double copy of APP instead of triple. Two instead of three. So they had the typical number for that gene. And these are, are pretty high-functioning people who have all the other parameters that, that go with Down syndrome, but not that one. So. This is a pretty exciting finding for studying. And and Tom's talk will be about how you can both help people with Down syndrome, which is, of course, important to do that, and at the same time learn things about diseases and conditions that 
typical people also have. Like Alzheimer's. Like Alzheimer's. People with Down syndrome also have a very high incidence of leukemia. So that's bad in the same way that Alzheimer's is bad. And I believe, although I don't know this the way I should, it's really childhood leukemia. It's not what, what happens to adults. So kids have a very high incidence of leukemia if they're a Down syndrome kid. People with Down syndrome, people with an extra copy of chromosome 21, do not get the other cancers that we all fear. A remarkable observation made a hundred years ago, and it's been studied now pretty carefully. And it's as though chromosome 21 has what is called a tumor suppressor gene on the chromosome. If you have three copies of that instead of two, you do get lower incidences of the solid cancers. Meaning breast cancer, colon cancer? All of those. It used to be thought that because the people with Down syndrome used to die quite young, that we were misinformed, if you will, about their incidence of cancer, which is largely a disease of older people. But now, the I think the time of uh, average demise for people with Down syndrome is beyond 60 now. So it's getting close to what happens to typical people. So it's clear that that's not what's going on. We could talk more about Down syndrome and what is being discovered by Tom Blumenthal and his group, but people can also go to your symposium on Friday, May 20th at the Gold Lab Symposium at CU Boulder and hear this for themselves. So let's go to the next science talk on Friday Friday morning. Gene Robinson is from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana or whatever they call it now. And his talk is Me to We, Searching for the Genetic Roots of Sociality. I know what he studies because I know him well. He's a good friend. He and his colleagues in the Genomics Institute actually named now after my mentor. So I have this close relationship with them. Gene studies bees, fish, and mice. They are all social creatures, and the group there, it's not just Gene. Gene does the bee work, and and, um, so it's it's a big group that's involved in this project. They have found, and he will report, and when you frighten them or threaten them, They have actually found that the brain response to those provocations in those three species are very similar. Which were the species again? Bees, mice, and fish, I think. Yes. I picture them differently because if it's bees and fish, I think of schools of fish hives of bees, but then you throw in those mice, and I just... I think that what he would say, I'm guessing, uh, because I've heard and read things from his group, but I've never heard him give the talk he's going to give, I think he would say that um, the Darwinian selection for traits like nurturing your young and fear responses to protect the young and things of that kind are sufficiently similar that these creatures that have not been, they are different species, are driven to either save from earlier creatures that led to all of these, save those things or independently evolve them separately. You you don't know which it is, and I don't know what it is. But I think this the idea that, that creatures would have similar responses to provocation 
and, and social skills has to have some brain biochemistry that, that is similar. Okay, so he's talking a lot about how the response, the basic core response of these creatures is similar emotionally, uh, whatever. Yeah, it is. And, and of course, the, the temptation here, you know, we all read Darwin one time or another. Darwin was very careful to not extrapolate from anything to humans until later in his life because he knew that was a landmine for him, you know, with the church and everything. And so the temptation is if you see this in three creatures that are just all over the species map, the temptation is to wonder whether those things are hardwired in us in a similar way. Larry Gold, does this make you wonder how far back does this go? Does a little roundworm have responses like these? I know they did mice. I know they did bees. I know they have worked on C. elegans, a little worm that everybody likes to study. And I'm sitting here trying to make sure that they did fish and not C. elegans. But you know what? We'll find out. Those of you in the radio audience, you can come and find out that I was wrong once again. <laughs> or right. And, and the concept is the most intriguing part of all how to... Uh, look at all of these things, and people listening, you can go to the Gold Lab Symposium, which is free, on Friday, May 20th at CU Boulder to hear those two talks and many others that are on the list for the Gold Lab Symposium this year. Let's go to Saturday, May 21st. The second day. Um, Science. You want more science. Well, so we're going to have a great talk about immunology from Tony Marion, a wonderful scientist who's from Tennessee. We're going to have a great talk from a guy named uh, Chip Petricoin, uh, who is from the uh, works at, actually at George Mason University. He's a fantastic scientist. And then we're going to have an outrageous talk. I, I should be careful to not put poor Sean Eddy in a bad place. Sean Eddy is a guy at Harvard who used to work at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in Genalia Farm. He got his PhD here, of all things, with me. And while he did get his PhD from me during the five years that he worked in my lab, I learned a hundred things from him for everything I taught him. I can promise you that. And this guy is, uh, has thought deeply about the genome, and he's going to give us a talk called A Tour of the Human Genome. When most people think about mapping the human genome, they think about either a spiral ladder, so maybe this tour will be on a spiral ladder, who knows, or else they think that all the answers are there already. But from what you're saying, when we talk about what we know about the human genome, we know a little bit about 2% of it, and it turns out some of the stuff we've been calling junk maybe is not. So yes, it's true that some of the stuff we've been calling junk may not be junk. My personal prejudice is that most of what we've been calling junk is junk, and that over time the creature we call the human species will get rid of most of that junk. Time is not a weekend. You don't get rid of all your DNA at a weekend. It will take, you know, a long time. We've only existed as a species about four million years. Our brains got bigger and we got to be blah, blah, blah. And we still have 
essentially the same DNA as chimps and bonobos and not so different, you know, gorillas are not so different. So the question is, where are we headed in evolution? Where are our genomes headed in evolutionary time periods? Well, I've been kind of worried about that, Larry Gold, because it used to be that selection would be so rigorous and survival of the fittest and all of that would force us to be evolving in some way. And now we all have TVs and YouTube. I don't know if we're going to be able to evolve anymore. I think that evolution is slow and inexorable. We cannot imagine. The best thing I ever read about this, you might have read this book, Carl Sagan's posthumous book. It was discovered 10 years after he died by his widow. They found this set of lectures that he had given in Oxford, and I bought that book. It's fantastic. Carl Sagan was such a hopeful man. Yes. The book was actually primarily about how many places in the universe does life exist. He calculated that there were a gazillion planets that were just like Earth. And then you have to make up a number that you don't know, which is, well, how many of them did life, where did life evolve? And he he made this kind of simple assumption. He said, well, since it happened so quickly on Earth, very quickly after the Earth cooled enough, he said, well, let's let's assume it's all of them, and just for the heck of it. So, you know, that leaves you with a fraction, you know, 1% or 10% of all the planets in the universe. Then you have a huge amount of life. And the point he made was not that one, which was shocking itself, but that in some places, life has existed for a very long time. Because there are places in the universe that are 14 billion years old, which is not the age of the Earth. The age of the Earth is four. Alexandra Drain, back on Friday at 2 p.m. at your Gold Lab Symposium that's happening the weekend of Friday, May 20th, and Saturday, May 21st. She's got a great title for her talk, Is Life the Missing Link? Uh, I have no idea what she's going to talk about. I know what she works on. What does she work on? Well, she's she's thought a lot about the connections between biology and social behavior. That's what I think, okay? She's a very interesting woman, a friend with some of our former speakers who kept saying, you have to invite her, you have to invite her. Meredith, I haven't invited her, and so we're going to see. I think of her as a social scientist. I don't know if she would accept that. That doesn't sound as sciencey, actually. I want to use that your question to tell you what's been happening for seven years. May I do that? Is that okay? Well, if you don't like it, you can cut it out. How's that? Let's do that. Let's one or the other. Yeah. Okay. So seven years ago when we started this thing, remember the extraordinary hubris that I showed because we called it in the first year the annual Gold Lab Symposium. And so far it's come true. Yes, it's tiring and expensive, but fun, and I keep meeting smart people, so I'm going to keep doing this until I die, um, hopefully 20 more years or something. And, um, and the first year, it was the, the, the mission that we announced in the first year was we were going to teach biology to everybody, and we were going to do it in a way where we got rid of this horrible language problem that scientists and MDs like to use to keep others out. And so we decided we would do better than that. And the first year, essentially, there was it was all science, I mean, that first year. And every year, it's gotten to be a smaller fraction of, of hard science 
and a bigger fraction of what is called soft science, which I hate as a word because soft science is also hard science. I mean, it's, you know, psychology and sociology, whatever you think. And, and all of these other things, economics, they all ape the hard sciences instead of, you know, talking and thinking and not thinking that the definition hard science makes it better or worse. And so we've been increasingly um, uh, asking people to come who have something to say about health care, uh, which she does, have something to say about the ways that we get along, the social aspects of, of community. And so this year, I think we may have reached the equilibrium I evolved to, and it's about half and half. But the people who are not hard scientists are also talking about things that are about health care. Can I give you one example? It's a stunning example. Let's go ahead and do that. This is a woman I've heard talk twice, and I've read her book. Elizabeth Scarborough is going to give the last talk on Saturday afternoon. So who is she? No scientist knows her. She's a young woman. She's in her early 40s, and she's an author, and she's from Boulder. She's the daughter of friends of mine in here in Boulder, and their daughter, Elizabeth, married a man who had cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis used to be a disease where if you reached the age of 30, you were lucky. It's not too much better now, although it can be. There are some drugs, finally, that are saving lives. Stephen was his name, finally got to the point where his lungs were just failing him. He ended up having a lung transplant, and he eventually died. And she wrote a book called something like My European Vacation. They always thought they might go to Europe, which I think they never did. And it is an extraordinary book that I gave hundreds of copies away. I made her royalties just because I loved it so much. The book is about the medical system and how it helped her and Stephen, I think. And then eventually, after a lung transplant, he died. She's a fantastic writer, and she will tell us about what she learned that was good in the medical system, which they had to interact with for years, 10 years. And, and, you know, and her life ends nicely so far. After a year of sitting around in a room wishing she was dead, somebody dragged her to a bar somewhere and some nice man met her and they eventually got married. And she's very famous because she wrote a remarkable article in the New York Times after she was married and had kids. She wrote an article about how she and Stephen had decided to save Stephen's sperm in case she, Elizabeth, ever wanted to have a baby by Stephen after he died. And there came, the, like, it makes me cry just thinking about it. There was a moment where she decided that she and her new husband were going to make babies and she could throw out Stephen's sperm. And can you imagine how difficult that was? And, and she wrote an article. She's a wonderful person. So, so we're going to end with an incredible tearjerker. And I'm going to cry just like I am right now. Anyway, back to you. You better ask somebody else because I'm done. And do you think that some of the best science happens because somebody loves and cares about somebody else? Yes, and they wish there was a way that yeah. that person could be better. I do. I do think that. Here you are bringing together people who 
want to stand together, Healthcare for Our Common Good. That's the name of this year's Gold Lab Symposium. We've been working on a plan for about a year and a half, and we are going to unveil it, if you will, which is high risk. It's like naming your first symposium an annual symposium. We're in the middle of raising money to do it as a, as a, as a new foundation to do something that will make healthcare better in Colorado. Does it have to do with people discovering new things about themselves or helping you discover new things about the science of health? Yeah, I think that what we have in mind is that there's a unmet need in biology that can only be met by large groups of people giving biological samples every year in a way that lets you understand how to do, for example, early detection of disease or to do, you know, yes, you're doing better, you're healthier, you're whatever, whatever you've parameters you care about. And what does not exist on this earth, because we have scoured the earth looking for it, no one has ever built a full-scale longitudinal database with medical records and where you could go in and ask people about people, gee, why did this woman get ovarian cancer was there something that I could have seen in her urine or her blood five years ago so I could have done a better job with her through early detection so you can imagine a a large set of really high class experiments of the kinds we've been talking about at this symposium since the beginning that you might be able to do if you built the infrastructure to get people to be part of the commons of making those kinds of samples available. So that's what we're going to try to do. Gold Lab Symposium begins Friday, May 20th. There is registration required, and afterward, this will be posted to a website. So there will be ways that if you miss it, you can still be part of it. Yeah, that's true. I hope people come. And uh, this will be the first time we've asked anybody to do more than think. We're going to actually ask them to sign up and help if they want to in some way toward this goal that's more than just the symposium. And that's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer, and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Nobukasu Takamoto. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender, 